HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Underground Meats, an American producer of handcrafted salami and cured meats in Madison, Wisconsin. For more information, visit shop.undergroundfoodcollective.org or stop by their butcher shop in Madison, Wisconsin. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn. As always, Nastasha the Hammer Lopez joining me in the studio. How you doing? Good. Yeah. And Jack and Joe in the engineering booth. How you guys doing? We're doing well. Yeah. yeah. Nice. So listen, how many? Uh, how much longer do we have to go on the uh, on the Kickstarter there on the Hassip Kickstarter, the underground? Uh Collectives, uh, That's a great question. I'll get right back to you. Yeah, let's figure that out. Because remember, what they're trying to do here with this Kickstarter and uh, is to create a HACCP plan. Now, not a HACCP plan for restaurants, although you could use it at a restaurant, but not, not just for restaurants, which is a much simpler thing, but a verified HACCP, uh, um, <laughs> verified HACCP plan for doing cured meats. Uh, and verified means that the uh, protocol has been tested and verified by an independent lab and accepted such that uh, anyone could use this HACCP plan for um, uh, rating themselves to do uh, you know, USDA-approved uh, curing of meats. And it's a very expensive process normally, tens of thousands of dollars. And what they're doing is they're going to pay for theirs but then make it uh, available for everyone to use on you know everyone to use and therefore kind of an open source HACCP plan, which is a fantastical, it's a good idea. Mm-hmm. So uh, either Jack or Joe is going to get back to us with how oh, they're I'm, doing. I'm ready. What do you got? It's passed. Successfully raised its goal three months ago. Three days ago, sorry. Three days. How much yeah. longer do you still have to give them money? Zero seconds. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, three days ago. It was done. Uh, so they raised just, just shy of 50000 uh, for their $40,000 goal. That's so great. congratulations. Yeah. All right, well, congratulations to them. And I'm sorry we didn't get to pump it once more, but uh, I'm glad they made it. Yeah? Yeah. I missed it. I was going to contribute, and I missed it. Crap. Uh, all right, we have some questions in. Call in your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Had a good time last week with the ideas and food people, huh? Yeah, they were good. Yeah. Uh, what are we doing today? Why don't we tell them what, what, uh, what our day is like today? What are we going to do? Pizza. Yeah, we're going to have a pizza. I'm thinking we're going to get the Roberta's Greens-related uh, pizza, right? But I really meant more in terms of uh, the Martha Stewart event. I know, I know. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, bar meeting. 
Well, okay, then, yes, then we're having Martha a bar meeting. Yeah, going, okay, yeah, that's what I think people... A, it's called American Made. It honors American Made products. Yeah? And it's kind of cool. Yeah. It's in Grand Central. So nice. we're doing a cocktail, uh, as usual, and uh, we're using a particular apple called a, a Wixen. Uh, it's called a Wixen crab apple, even though I don't believe it's actually a crab apple. I believe it's a regular domestic apple. I'll have to look that up. Maybe you guys look that up for me. A Wixen apple. Uh, but it's very small, which is why it's called a crab. I believe it's originally from California, hence American-made. Not just grown in America, but a real American apple. Except That's for, right, California. Yeah, but which is unusual, actually. Most of the apple varieties that you know the old or, or it's not that old that this one but a lot of the famous apple varieties are uh you know i you know all you know apologies to folks from washington and the pacific northwest who think they grow you know all the great apples but most of the great apple varieties come from the east coast and the north and uh but wixen is a fantastic little apple because it has a very very high sugar content and a very very high um Acid content. What that means is extremely friendly for cocktails. Uh, so um, you know, much so you can use like much less of it, have a much higher uh, flavor profile. Another apple that does that that's not American is the Ashmead's Kernel, which I hope to get very soon. You're gonna get some from John Riper. Yeah, yeah Ashmead's Kernel mm-hmm. from out west. Mm-hmm. Whoa, I've never had an Ashmead's Kernel from out west. I've had them from England. I've had them from New York. I've had them from New Hampshire, but I've never had them from. Uh, all right, so we'll try a Western Ashmead's Kernel. Ashmead's Kernel was discovered sometime in the first decade of the uh, 1700s in England. Also a very high sugar and acid a- uh, apple and just really just a real, both the Wixen, the Wixen also has not just high acid and sugar but a very nice flavor, a kind of spicy. It makes a light, 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 light pink juice mm-hmm. that's really uh, pretty. Ashmead's Kernel makes uh, a yellow juice because uh, it's not a red-fleshed apple, a red-skinned apple and uh, just a fantastic juice. So we'll use that in a little bit. But the drink we're making with Wixen today is we're taking, um, well, today we're using Michter's and we're yes. making a similar drink tomorrow with Maker's Mark, but a whiskey. Uh, is the Michter's the rye or the bourbon that we're using? Bourbon. bourbon. So bourbon in both cases. And we're, the problem with mixing a fantastic apple like Wixen, uh, Wixen crab apple, there were, uh, the problem with mixing it with uh, straight whiskey, uh, and then also the problem then if you're going to carbonate it, which we are, uh, the problem is that the oak, all of the oak extractives in the whiskey really dried roughshod over the top of the apple variety, and they don't marry well, and it just becomes a big, confusing mess, uh, or a cordial you, as my son Booker puts it. He calls any kind of mess a cordial you after the uh, – I don't, don't want to get into it. Anyway, so the uh, so you, what we do is we have to strip out some of that oak, and we put it through a process we call detanning. And the way we do it is we add various charged um, – Charged uh, ingredients to the uh, to the to the thing that agglomerate some of that oak, and then we filter it out. The easiest one, and the one we're doing for this, is we take kytosan. Uh, kytosan is uh, now now my brain's erased. Kytosan is positively charged, I think, hydrocolloid uh, derived from usually from shrimp shells. Although within the next couple of years, we'll have fungally available kytosans. Uh, I always forget which one's positive, which one's negative. My brain's gone. Anyway, so we add uh, we add some of that to the uh, to the uh, bourbon. We we shake it up. We let it sit a uh, sit around a while then now here's the trick we want to suck out the kytosan and also suck out uh the uh tannins and the oak extractives that are bound to the kytosan so i don't want to add something that is um that 
dissolves. I want to add instead something that just swells a little bit but has a high surface area. So I add high acyl gel N, that's calcogel F, which is a hydrocolloid that is oppositely charged from chitosan but won't dissolve in the liquor. And you just add it and shake it and it turns milky and you keep shaking it and you shake it over the course of a couple of hours, three or four times. And when that stuff settles out, you don't even need a centrifuge. You just pour this stuff off and you have uh, whiskey that has been had some of uh, the kind of harshness of it removed and I have more aggressive techniques that use gelatin, but they're extremely aggressive. Like it comes out, you know, you know, too neutral for my taste. We then take that, we mix it with Wixen, uh, a little bit of water, carbonate it, and bueno, right? Yeah, good. it's good, right? It's a good product. Anyway, that's what we're making today for. It's not called Taste of Martha. What's it called? American made. <laughs> American made. Yeah, Taste of Martha. How many drinks are we making for that thing? Uh, eight bottles worth of Victor's bourbon, so yeah, this is, kick. Yeah, what is this? This is the opening party. It's the opening party for the – there's some sort of festival or awards or some crap, mm-hmm. right? It's do the we, awards party. Do we know anyone that's winning awards? No, we don't. It's all like little small mom and pop vendors. We don't know any of those? I feel like we should know all of like those. I, I saw a quilt maker when I was up there. Oh, quil- like I don't know. Yeah, I don't know anything about yeah. quilts. Do you know anything about quilts? My mom quilts. Well, well. Therefore, I hate it. <laughs> Strong. Okay. Uh, got one in from Zach in Pittsburgh. Hey, Zach. Uh, how you doing? Uh, how are you? I like that. How you doing? Uh, what's the deal with canned black olives? Why are they terrible? How come we live in a time when every grocery store has an olive bar with decent oil and salt-cured olives? Many restaurants continue to put these black balls of disgusting on their salads. I like how it's a black, just a black ball of disgusting. It's not even an olive, not a black ball of disgusting olive, just a black ball of disgusting. Uh, Zach, you're forgetting the sliced discs of disgusting that go on top of the nachos. Um, How do we defeat the canned black olive menace? Thanks, Zach in Pittsburgh. So first of all, I've never, literally have never spoken to uh, Nastasia about, uh, Nastasia, about uh, this olive uh, style. And since she is from California, land of the California uh, style olives. So what are your thoughts on canned black California olives? I really don't like them. But I had them on pizza on Saturday, so I can eat them. You can eat them, but you, I don't like them. Have you always not liked them? Yes. Yeah? Mm -hmm. But you like olives. Mm -hmm. So you're not one of these people that just doesn't like olives. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, for, for those of you. Do you like them? Uh... Okay, okay. Now, listen. Don't anyone get angry at me. They, they, they're, they're, they're bad product, right? They're not a good product. Okay, let's just put it that way. Uh, I don't mind them. You know what I mean? It's like here's my feeling. And Zach, stick with me here. Don't like switch off the radio and run screaming. If you think about them as if they were an olive, then they're horrible. You know what I mean? It's a horrible thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. If all you're thinking about it is kind of like a squidgy, somewhat oily, black texture blobule, right? <laughs> then I'd say it's better than a lot of the uh, you know hydrocolloid tricks that people pull. And it's just it's just like a little textural thing. It has like a, like a, a slight flavor, um, and so I, I find them theoretically offensive. Right, and I uh, in in most applications, I would rather have real olive, you know. But uh, I don't, I don't think that they're, I don't think that. Well, maybe they are an abomination that should be erased. But I, I don't mind them somehow. You know what I'm saying? What are they? Are they olives? Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about how they're made. In fact, you can look up. Uh, there's a UC Davis put out. I love UC Davis. 
I, love, I freaking love UC Davis. Uh, they put out a, a technical bulletin called Olives, Safe Methods for Home Pickling that you can get a PDF of. There's also a, an online PDF available called uh, California Olives Processing the Crop that goes through the technical uh, literature on how to um, make California-style black olives. But should you be a moron enough to want to make California-style black olives with the olives that come off of your tree in your backyard, UC Davis tells you how to do it, which I freaking love, right? They also tell you how to make real olives. So the, the deal with all olives when they come off the tree – uh, is they're very high in a substance called, and I can't pronounce it. Everyone who know, who listens knows that I can't pronounce it a damn thing. Is uh, oleuropine, which is an extremely uh, bitter uh, compound that's in in olives that is water soluble. So the trick of all curing techniques, right, is to leach out or get rid of a certain quality of that oleuropine, right, to make the uh, olives palatable. So in a salt-cured olive, traditional old-school salt-cured olive, you just take and pack the olives in salt. Moisture leaches out as a result. The moisture carries with it a large amount of the oleuropine, and it drips down in the thing, and then boom. And you have to wait a long time, right? Oil-cured, uh, salt-cured olives. Uh, then you can rinse off the salt and pack them in oil, whatever you want. Uh, brine-cured olives, right? Typically what you do even before you add the, the, the brine, you'll crack the olive so that, you know, because the skin is not so easy to penetrate. And then uh, you'll put it in a water solution and the water will leach out the oleuropine. And so that what they'll do is they'll change the water like once a day for, you know, depending on how much bitterness you want to extract. You want to leave some of it in. The more you extract kind of not only bitterness but other flavors are gone so you lose more flavor as you go, right? Then after you're done with that, you then uh, can put it in a brine solution, a salt solution and do a straight uh, fermentation of it make kind of a delicious fermented olive or if you're puny or if you like this, you can just add a vinegar solution to it and that will prevent further fermentation and you have more of a pickled olive, right? So those are kind of the, the things. Now, all of these things take time and what do the California olive producers not want? To take time. They don't want to take time. So they have this genius – well, genius – this technology called lye processing. So they're using lye. It's another use of lye in, in the kitchen. So lye, uh, the, you know, the basic solution lye, breaks down uh, the oleuropine and makes it easy to extract. So once the lye gets in there, it wipes it out in a couple of days. They can go through the entire procedure – Right? Instead of weeks, they can do the entire procedure from you know, harvest to uh, in a can in like, in like 10 days, like 7 to 10 days. Right? And here's, here's how it works. First of all, uh, so they, they don't have enough production facilities to, um, to, to do olives – to do all the olives at harvest time. And in fact, it doesn't make economic sense. They want to do harvesting throughout the year. So California olives, what happens is they're – picked and they're put in uh, vats, but they're not even put in salt uh, brine vats anymore. They used to put them in salt brine vats to keep them static so that nothing happened to them. They didn't want them to ferment or change because it's not what they're looking for. They're not looking for fermented and changed. They're looking for a bland, neutral California black olive. So what they do – and by the way, they're not picked black. They're picked at what's called the green ripe stage, which is ripe, but it's, it's green. It hasn't turned black yet, even though olives will turn black on the tree. Blackish purple from anthocyanins. It's actually our good buddy anthocyanins are what's doing that. So anywho, so they're green and they're stored in this salt brine. People are like, well, look, you know, people are getting mad at us because we're dumping all this salt into the earth, right? It's bad. So they now literally just store it in giant vats. 
tons, like 20-ton vats of uh, a mix of lactic acid, acetic acid, which is vinegar, and uh, benzoate and sorbate to keep any sort of yeast or bacteria from growing it. So it's in a preservative brine, uh, not even a brine, a preservative acid bath. And it can stay there for like a freaking year, for for a long time. Although apparently, according to the Processing the Crop PDF, premium quality California olives are usually processed before July. Now remember, that's freaking July. So they're sitting in a static bath since, I don't know, when do they harvest? Like November or whatever, around then? Right? Okay, so you get them out of this brine thing, right? And then they put them, they used to do it as, as a as a processing. Now they just have kind of like uh, automatic tanks that can do it, big automatic tanks that can do it. So you dump it in a tank and you, you flush it with lye, right? Now, here's the trick. You need to keep, give it like a bunch of different uh, lye baths. So you drain off the lye and you add more lye. Drain off the lye and add more lye. And in between and during that process, you're bubbling air through it, right? And it's the air added to the uh, olives along with the, the lye breaks stuff down, right, and makes more of the polyphenolic compounds in the olives available to kind of agglomerate. And you add air and the oxygen helps them oxidize, and that's what makes the black color of the olive is the air. So if you were to do a lye treatment with no air, right, then you would not have a black olive. And in fact, the UC Davis do- uh, document when you're making, if you should ever want to go home and make the California black olives yourself, what you do is you put the lye in it and then you uh, drain it and let it be exposed to air for a while, then add more lye. Boop, 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 boop. So you keep lying it and you cut them open and you look and as soon as the lye hits the pit, you've leached out enough of the oleuropine. It's much faster than it is much faster than any of the other techniques, but it also it gets rid of almost all of the oleuropine, meaning it has almost no bitterness left, and uh, as a side benefit, leaches out almost all the characteristic flavors of the olive, so you have the tasteless pablum left, right? Now, now it goes through a rinsing procedure to get rid of the, uh, to get rid of the lye, and they have accelerated mixing systems with air that blast the stuff out. Now you got rid of the lye with water. They dump all that crap. Then uh, they do a light brine solution, and they have to brine it. They have to get the brine solution, you know, up in increments. Otherwise, the olive will shrivel. And then they can that sucker at a high, high, high pressure. Oh, uh, it, 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 before canning. Uh, they add a little bit of uh, – I forget what it is, but it's some sort of iron compound. And the iron compound is there to fix the black color so the black color doesn't fade or change over time. So uh, on the internets, they will falsely say that, 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 that the, uh, this ferric thing is added so, – ferrous thing is added so that to make the black color because they're not turning black naturally. That's not true. It's really just a, a preservative. Not that that's better, but I prefer accuracy to inaccurate uh, statements. And so there you have your uh, California uh, black – Riped olives. Nice. Nice. Let's go to a commercial break. Underground Meats is an American producer of handcrafted salami and cured meats in Madison, Wisconsin. They use small farms from southwest Wisconsin to source their meat. The animals are raised on pasture for their entire lives by farmers who care about animal welfare. While Underground Meats uses European traditions, they also use ingredients from the upper Midwest to try to create new types of salamis, experimenting with both ingredients and techniques. The salamis are made using heritage breeds, mostly red wattles, tamworts, berkshires, and mule foots. Try their award-winning cured pork shoulder and goat salami. To learn more and purchase products, visit shop.undergroundfoodcollective.org or stop by their butcher shop in Madison, Wisconsin. 
like I like that. I like that. it's like it's like it's like no, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you the lead in again. Like that actually was renamed Fish's Fish's Vodka, right? Yeah. That's the real name of the song. Well, yeah, I mean it's very closely related to the uh, Vicious Fish's Vodka, the Amos Milburn cut, which we you know which we used to use. Hey, we got a caller, Dave. Got a caller? All right, caller, caller on the air. Hello. Howdy. Hi, Dave. Howdy. Uh, I have a question for you about uh, natural pickles. Okay. I've done uh, naturally fermented cucumbers with great success, but I just bought a bunch of a uh, bunch of different vegetables at the farmers market, and I want to naturally ferment them all. I was wondering if uh, if you have any pointers for other kinds of vegetables. Uh, what are good vegetables? What vegetables I shouldn't do? Is cooking vegetables going to screw up the process? Can I do any fruits? Just anything you can uh, advise. Do you own the Sander Katz book, by the way? I've heard of it, but I don't have it. Yeah, you should You should get it. It's worth the money on this stuff, and I'll tell you why. Uh, he has gone through a – and even if you don't necessarily agree with uh, everything he says, he has gone through and tested a huge variety of specific – uh, fruits and vegetables under specific curing regimens, right? Now, so I highly recommend that you go and even actually, you know, if you want to cheat, if you do the Amazon look inside, you can look inside and like find like various tips on, on various different things. The thing about cooking um, vegetables or fruits beforehand, for instance, doing, putting cucumbers in, in, a, in a hot bath, right? It, like a lot of what that's doing is trying to kill uh, enzymes and bacteria in the – or denature enzymes and kill bacteria in the product that might soften the vegetable before the pickling process is complete or during the pickling process, right? So in, in cucumbers – uh, you know that's one of the reasons you know that they'll do a, a quick boil on them to to do on the outside, and a lot of vegetables are the same way. But like if you're doing something and you want it to stay extremely extremely crunchy, like raw crunchy on something that's hard, like let's say a carrot, you don't want to do it so long that you have a problem. I don't really know if there's an advantage at all, frankly, to boiling a carrot before you pickle it because I haven't tried. You know what I'm saying? But this is the kind of thing that Sandor Katz would probably be great on for 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 looking up. Um, the other thing, uh, when you know, if you're dealing with something that has a tendency to soften, right, then you can add some sort of um, positive, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, positively charged uh, ion to it, like uh, calcium or something like this, and that's going to strengthen the pectin in the cell walls and you know let you have a crunchier product over time. Um, like, what vegetables do you have? Uh, I have carrots, Brussels sprouts, beets, onions, and uh, broccoli. Yeah, I mean, all that stuff should pickle should pickle well. I've never, I've only ever done vinegar pickling on onions, though. I don't know what a traditionally pickled onion. I'm sure it'd be delicious, but all of these things are, uh, you know, well, actually, you know, you have onions inside of kimchi, which I've done a million times. Anyway, but, but like, but these. Um, these are all things that I like highly recommend that you that you just go get his book or do the Amazon look inside because I don't know specific recommendations and there might be a particular trick for a particular vegetable that I would miss and why why miss it when you can just look it up on his thing does that make sense or no Yes uh you mentioned calcium what kind of calcium would you recommend uh, that's a good question. So 
you know, the calcium chloride tastes horrific, but you could use it in uh, in small quantities. In fact, they add calcium chloride to uh, canned um, tomatoes. That's why canned tomatoes don't break down when you cook them the same way that tomatoes break down when you cook them. Um, and they're added usually at a low enough uh, dosage rate that you you know you don't taste it with the rest of the stuff. Although you know I have a mental block about adding something that you know tastes horrific. But you know you could add a little bit of uh, calcium chloride, or you could uh, do a, a dip uh, in um, pickling lime, or add a small amount of pickling lime water, which is calcium hydroxide, uh, to it. Uh, that'll increase the calcium and make things more crunchy. That also has a flavor, but you know you want to add a kind of minute quantities. So it's calcium hydroxide, calcium chloride, uh, and that's why it's called, by the way, pickling lime. You know, this it's the same thing that's used in um, in nixtamalization, um, which is known as cal when you're in Mexico. But it's all it's all the same stuff or Thai red lime paste, all the same product. And it's calcium hydroxide, which is basic and very very dilute, very very weakly uh, uh, soluble. So you could do a soak in in a pickling lime solution and then do pickling and that should firm it. Um, but any, anything like that, calcium lactate, uh, calcium lactate gluconate is the least flavorful of the or least disgusting of the calciums, but also the um, also the uh, uh, hardest to dissolve and the most expensive. Carrots actually have a high amount of calcium, and the modernist cuisine guys told me once that the inside of a carrot, the little pithy part in the middle, extremely high in calcium. So, I mean, I don't know if any of this stuff's going to be necessary in something like a carrot, but it might be helpful in broccoli, for instance. Okay. Yeah, but uh, yeah, but yeah. Let, let, tweet us in at, at, at Cooking Issues and let us know uh, how this stuff works out and whether you've figured out any good uh, tips or tricks because uh, I like to I like to hear these things. I will. Thank you very much. Cool. Thank you. Uh, okay, so we have a, a, a question in from Joshua. He goes, "Dear Nastasha, Jack, and Joe, and me, Dave. Nice, nice to be included. Should we answer the question in that order?" Uh, well, you can well, if no, you know the answer. Starts with Dave. It I'll look. Oh, did start with Dave. No, but here's the thing: we should answer it in that order. If any of you guys know the answer to this, I don't know. I'll give you some sort of prize. We'll jump in. Yeah, I was recently at Booker and Dax during my first trip to New York. It was nothing short of incredible. Welcome to New York. Come back again. We like we like tourists to come to New York. That's how we make our money in New York. What do you think this is? Either Tell me about your tourist lane. Well, back in the day, here's the thing. I used to live in uh, in Times Square, right outside Times Square in the Garment District. Stas, you live really close to it yeah. now, right? Mm-hmm. And this is not – I don't think this is my idea. I think this goes back to an old uh, like New York Times Magazine thing from decades ago. But the concept is that you have a, a, a tourist lane where you're allowed to kind of stop. Pivot. Pivot. Yeah. Take pictures. Do whatever it is that you do when you know you're in, in the city for the first time, and then a kind of a commuter's walking lane where if you if you if you slow down at all or if you swerve or move in any way other than to get out of the then yeah then you get shouldered instantly, so you're like like viciously shouldered and you're not upset about it because hey it's my bad I was in the commuting lane and I got viciously shouldered. You know, kind of like bikers do on uh, on the Brooklyn Bridge. Brooklyn Bridge, anyone's a biker out there, and you bike on the Brooklyn Bridge, you're a freak show. You just like confrontation, and you just you just hate mellow times because that that's what it would be like. It would be like that if you put a tour if you put a commuter walking lane into Times Square, 
you know, you would have the same situation with angry people that you have on the Brooklyn Bridge. Uh, and by the way, another oh, maybe it wasn't the tourist lane that was the idea, but in the New York Times, they just they basically said that we should have these zones where uh, people who live in Manhattan aren't allowed to go. And Times Square would be one of them. And we're we're just not allowed in there mm. because we just get angry, and that's our freaking problem. Like that is not built there's for us. That's not for us. This is in Times Square, though. Yeah. yeah, but they're not for us. Mm. You know what I'm saying? It's 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 like like. A, a Manhattan person is not allowed to get angry at tourists in uh, Times Square. That's unreasonable. Like, it is there for them. You are just a chump who, like, happened to plan his commute through, the like, one of the busiest tourist places in, in the world. You're bad. Your fault. Anyway. Um, that had nothing to do with cooking. Here we go. Uh, uh, I was recently at Booker and Dax, my first trip to New York. It was nothing short of incredible. The ham and pork buns were both outstanding, but the drinks were out of this world. Well, thank you, Joshua. I appreciate it. Uh, I would consider buying a centrifuge just to make the gin and juice again. You can make it without a centrifuge using uh, agar clarification. Anyway, while there, I tried some orange juice with a lime uh, juice acid profile. I have done a literature search and can't find any standard acid amounts in citrus varieties except for citric acid. Any help or a recipe would be great. Also, I used to live in England, and I love the English-style bacon rashers that are in full English breakfast. Do you know what cut specifically is used and where I might source it? The only butchers near me just repackage what they are sent, therefore no custom cuts. And if there is anything special about the cure, thank you for all of your help, Joshua. Okay. Um, Well, so, Jack and Joe, you want to try and hit that guy? Uh, I got nothing, Joe. (laughs) I'm going to take a stab at the bacon one and just say it's a thickness thing. It's just pork belly. Okay, well, uh, I, I have to admit, Stas, you got anything no, on this? No. I have to admit, uh, I, I was I locked in so much on the first part of your question that I forgot to even look into the second part of your question, which is horrible. However, I will say this, um, and you know, I, I you know I like that stuff. Bacon uh, only in the U.S. Uh, does bacon really mean um, just the belly cut of the of the pig? And in fact, you used to in England have a whole uh, the whole side of the pig, the flitch, would be done uh, cured in the st- in the manner of bacon. Uh, and I presume that they do uh, pump styles, but also dry uh, dry styles. And like one of the famous when you look up is Wiltshire cut or Wil- Wiltshire style uh, uh, bacon because that's one of the famous cures. I have the actual old old techniques in a book uh, by a guy named Nichols called Bacons and Ham, and uh, I did a short review of Bacons and Ham on uh, Cooking Issues, the book's from 1917. It has a picture of the author Nichols dressed as a uh, flitch of, I love the word flitch of bacon, uh, as a flitch of Wiltshire bacon, uh, and it's got a fold-out pig with all the parts in it. Uh, and if, if you remind me, if you send in a tweet next week, I will specifically look up uh, how to do the Wiltshire style, or maybe Jack and Joe can look it up. Like, that's the classic English bacon. Bacon style, the Wiltshire, Wiltshire I stuff. That book you have. Oh, that's an amazing book. You copied it. It's on the blog. Uh, part of it's on the blog. Uh, the last time I checked, which was three years ago, Google hadn't um, uploaded it. But maybe you guys can see if uh, they have uploaded Bacon's and Hams because it's one of the all-time great books. The guy has a real sense of humor about bacon. You know what I mean? And he was a producer and just an awesome, awesome guy. Anyways, so as to your first question. Um, so you say you can only find citric acid, and the reason is is that most fruit juices are uh, most fruit juices are specified in terms of the titratable acidity ex- as expressed as grams of citric acid per 100 milliliters of product. That's how it's done, right? And so it's expressed as an acidity percentage of citric acid. And luckily, or not luckily, 
you know, coincidentally, the majority of acid in uh, orange juice is in fact citric acid, and it's usually somewhere in the in the range of zero point eight to uh, like one percent in that range, zero point eight to one percent acid for a standard acidic uh, orange juice that you have lying around. So I use zero point eight. Now, what that means is that there are um, eight grams of citric acid in a liter of um, in a liter of orange juice or there are 0.8 grams or close to a gram of citric acid in a hundred milliliters or uh, of um, of orange juice now lime juice right uh, lime juice and lemon juice are both roughly six uh, percent acidity so six percent like so there would be uh, a lot more right and so so, uh, so lemon juice is almost entirely citric acid. So if you wanted uh, orange juice with the same acidity as uh, lemon juice and the same f- acid profile as lemon juice, you would add roughly uh, five grams of citric acid to uh, 100 milliliters of, of orange juice, and you'd have roughly – Lemon juice. If you wanted to do lime juice, lime juice has uh, a different acid profile. It is roughly, it's also roughly 6%, but it's two parts of citric to one part malic. So uh, to make lime juice acid out of water, you would take four grams of uh, malic acid, uh, sorry, four grams of citric acid and two grams of malic acid uh, and also a pinch of succinic acid, which is the real thing that makes it taste like quality lime juice. But, you know, that's just a secret between all of us. Anyway, uh, succinic acid, very difficult to get. The other two you can just get at a homebrew shops uh, or wine supplies. So you add that and you get it. So when you're trying to take orange juice up to lime juice uh, acidity, assume that your 100 milliliters of uh, orange juice already has in it one gram of uh, citric acid. So you need to add another uh, three grams of citric acid. Hmm? Is that right? Three, four, yeah. Add three grams of citric acid more and then two grams of malic. Let it dissolve and whammo, you have uh, orange juice with the acid profile of lime. Yeah? Nice. Yeah. Uh, and you needn't worry. By the way, and I'll go more into this uh, if you buy, you know, in a year's time when my cocktail book comes out, if you buy it, I'll go into excruciating detail about why uh, it's useless to use pH meters to um, measure the uh, acidity of juices. And that really the, the measurement that you want to use, the only thing that's important is the titratable as, uh, acidity uh, as expressed in grams of citric acid per 100 mils. And even though different acids have different uh, levels of acidity, that really is is uh, you know to a first order of magnitude all you need to know because your mouth doesn't taste pH your mouth tastes how many acid molecules are present and the different acids do have different profiles so lemon juice which is primarily citric has a very fast citric attack and then decay whereas malic acid has a longer uh, a longer resonant time on your tongue and so malic acid tends to uh, tends to last for a longer amount of time but has less of a punch less of an attack so they are slightly different but there you have it what do you think Anyway. Uh, do we take another break or no? We've got another question here. Oh, what do you got? Some of your general rules of thumb for keeping leftovers and then subsequently reheating them. 
Well, it depends on the leftover, really. I mean, so like with meats, uh, with meats, you want to make sure that you don't let oxygen hit them so you don't get the warmed over flavor when you reheat them, right? Because it's an oxidative thing. So if you have a meat with fat on it, the fat's exposed to air, you then reheat it, you can get uh, oxidative damage to the uh, um, oils and you get these kind of cardboardy off flavors and it's known as warmed over flavor. And that's considered bad. So you want to store that stuff without without uh, heat. But you know, if you have a, you know, look in the future, maybe everyone will have a circulator just like sitting around, kind of running, so they can they can reheat stuff. In general, uh, I think an unfortunate thing that happens is we tend to well I, at home I tend to store everything in quart containers right so you'll make a stew you'll make a soup you make whatever you'll pack it into a quart container and you'll put it in your fridge or I don't know if you don't have quart containers pack it into and those are relatively difficult to reheat because uh, they're real they're thick so let's say you were to make a stew or some sort of whatever you know whatever you want and pack it in and then you try to reheat that well it doesn't really work and then you break it out you put it in a pan and the stuff in the bottom of the pan starts to scorch right you've had this happen right Stas and it's irritating and, and the only alternatives are to like sit there and nuke it a billion times and stir it while you nuke it to try which is irritating right uh, here's a better solution I think is to put your stuff in Ziploc bags and then flatten them when you seal them now the entire package the entire Ziploc package is only you know uh, you know like a, se- a couple centimeters thick maybe and then you can heat up some water to a simmer turn it off throw your packages in you don't want to boil Ziploc bags because they can hit the sides of pans and break and they reheat very quickly and very evenly if you have a rice cooker that is induction fired with induction right and it's a grain product that you're trying to reheat throwing a couple tablespoons of water into the bottom of your rice cooker and then just dumping the product in and breaking it up and hitting the reheat cook cycle is a fantastic mellow way to reheat stuff that'll work i mean should you have to reheat rice that's the best way even though i mean the best way is to make fried rice fried rice delicious do you like fried rice Mm -hmm. yeah oh man good Really? You like fried rice? Thank Christ. We need a sound effect for when Nastasia likes something. Yeah. yeah, fried rice is straight up delicious. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how you can not like it. It's delicious. Anyways, uh, do you like the egg mixed in or the chunks of egg? Oh, egg mixed in. Really? I kind of like both, so I mix some in and then I cut up. I make some like you know some omelet style stuff and throw the chunks oh, in as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anywho, so but if you want to reheat it normal style rice, like I use the the Zojirushi, which is awesome piece of equipment, induction fuzzy neuro fuzzy rice cooker, eighteen cup. And I tell you what, you look at the price tag, and you're like two hundred fifty bucks for a rice cooker. I use that sucker so freaking much. It is such a freaking machine. It does such a great job on rice. But anyway, also that can reheat things like lentils or drier things like beans that are more difficult to reheat. I mean things that are liquidy beans, you don't really need it. Although I guess it could. I've never used it for that. But it's really gentle, and because it's induction uh, heated and has a fairly accurate uh, thermal uh, control, it doesn't ever scorch. Never, ever. Never scorch. Never, never scorch. Um, the other alternative is to spread things very thick and then hit them with super high heat and crust them up. Like, do you like, do you like to reheat pasta by like, frying the bottom of it to get a real nice crust on it or not? Depends. The problem is if you've overcooked the pasta at all, it mushes and then turns to crap. God, I hate that. I hate that. Do you hate that? I hate that. Uh, what do you think, Jack? These good suggestions or no? This is great. All right. Do we need any more? Do we need more reheat reheat uh, techniques? I think that's good for now. All right. We also wanted to know uh, what what your tailgate would look like as it's kind of tailgate season right now. Oh man. Uh, Dave doesn't like football or fantasy. I don't like fantasy. No offense. Like in general, you don't like fantasies in general. Like in, in in general, in general, I'm like that's just a fantasy. No, that's not true. Like I have an imagination. I'm not a fantasy football. Uh, I don't. I don't dislike fantasy football. I feel that you know, 
uh, and look, you know, Stas bringing up personal stuff here. I just feel that we have enough work to do at Booker and Dax Equipment Company trying to get some of our projects off the ground that we don't, don't need to fill the time with fantasy football. Whoa! I want everyone to see, I want everyone to hear Nastasha yeah. Lopez saying she does me. not that do fantasy football at that work. Was Piper. That was you and Piper sitting together with some sort of stats up, discussing the relative merits of the Manning brothers, and discussing your fantasy football picks as though it was some sort of urgent problem that needed to be addressed. It was happening. That, it was Thursday. It's like Thursday is the day you need to be ready. Wait, which is it? The Thursdays the day you need to be ready, and I it's really urgent and a big deal, or that you don't do it at work? Oh my god, fantasy freaking football, fantasy! I'm like, I'm like, we have real life projects that are going sour, and you're working on fantasy football. Uh, so my tailgate. If I was going to do it, I mean, I would bring a bunch of my Sears all so I can finish some stuff off. Uh, are you allowed to run your car during the tailgate, or is that considered, like, really bad news? Bad news, right? That's ruining the environment. It's bad form, yeah. Yeah. So what do, you, what do people do? Bring a bunch of batteries to run their circulators? I think they run it off a generator. They run it off a generator? I mean, look, I would probably do, like, some serious brats and burgers uh, with either, like, a grill or a Sears all or both. And I would just crank out some super high quality uh, products like that. I would take, I would make a bunch of carbonated cocktails, and then I get a bunch of, uh, you know, probably bottles. Or do people prefer cans at, the, at these things? I don't think you can bring glass in. So cans. Yeah. So we would do uh, probably some bottle cocktails for me, uh, you know, in plastic bottles, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, carbonated because yeah. Although, <laughs> how many people are at tailgates are not driving? Oh, I think they're all driving. Well, hell, I'm not going to serve them that crap. Well, I think there's some that don't drive. Then they just come with the crew. All right. Well, for the people that can't drink, here's something. If you want beer and you can't drink, I do this hops tincture right now that you can add to seltzer water, and it gives kind of a beery feeling to it, but it's a much higher quality product than, like, I just feel bad buying Odul's. It just seems weird, right? But anyway, I would probably do a salt, uh, salt and ice chilled uh, beer section where I get it really accurate, and I get it just down to the freezing point of the beer. Just there. You know what I mean? Just right. You Super cold. come to our tailgate on December 8th. Yeah, that probably won't happen. But listen, like, <laughs> the, uh, so, wow. so the, the trick is American – like I don't want to hear anything from a beer aficionados saying, well, beer isn't supposed to be cold. American beer is supposed to be cold. It has no flavor. So it's supposed to be really – it has flavor. But it's supposed to be cold, right? Ice cold. Ice freaking cold. And actually – Ice is only at about zero. You want that thing slightly more than ice cold. So a little salt and ice in there. Uh, so that's how I would probably rock out the, the tailgate. What do you think? That sounds good. Yeah, people would come to that, right? Yeah. Burgers. Brats. 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 Dave, you might hate fantasy football like Nastasia hates vegans. Uh, no, because I don't have anything against it when it doesn't intrude on work. I mean, it's not like vegans like knock on my window and say, hey, can you stop working so that we can talk about vegetables? <laughs> It doesn't happen. Uh, you know? All right. We got a caller. Uh, caller, you're on the air. Hey, David. Nathan from Richmond. Hey, how you doing? Good, man. Um, I had a question about cooking meat from frozen. Okay. Um, I wanted to know what hap- what's happening when you're cooking meat from frozen, and is it ever um, a negative quality thing, like if you were cooking a braise, for instance, like pork cheeks or maybe a pig's head braise, would that be a good thing, or... Like acceptable, or would you get a really mushy product? All right. Well, I've never done a side by side. I have cooked from frozen on you know on 
occasions, on several, more than several occasions. Uh, I have never done, I've never done a side by side. Now there are people, of course, who always sear frozen, like they they freeze the product and then sear it. Uh, right. And there's some people like the Modernist Cuisine uh, recommendations where they just par freeze the outside with liquid nit or not par hard freeze, but only on the surface with liquid nitrogen, then do their sear. And the theory there being that uh, you're not going to overcook the interior of the meat, right? Um, right. You know, the results are actually slightly different. In fact, Ideas in Food now has a big frozen sear thing that they do. And I don't know if they cook direct from frozen or not. I think they do. But, yeah. I, uh, I, you know, <clears throat> there might, I repeat, might be a difference in um, what happens when you're cooking on a, on a slow cook. Going, you're, you're talking in a bag slow, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay, because in tra- you can't really do it traditionally at traditional temperatures because you'll overcook before you thaw. You know what I'm saying? So you can't do it that right, way. But if, right, but if you're doing – we're talking low temp. Good. So we're talking low temp. Uh, the only difference I can see is that in a standard piece of meat, a large portion – a standard unfrozen piece of meat that you're cooking low temperature, a large portion of the meat is in the range – uh, in kind of the middle temperature range between 40 uh, cells, uh, 40 uh, Fahrenheit, you know, uh, fridge temperature and uh, cooking temperature, let's just say 55 Celsius for the steak that I do, right? There's a good, uh, uh, yeah. there's a good amount of meat in that range, and in that range, when the meat is in there, different things can happen. The enzymes can uh, help break uh, down uh, tissues, and different reactions can take place. You won't have those reactions take place in a piece of meat that's going directly uh, in the bath from freezing because there'll be a fairly fine line between the cook temperature place and the place where it's uh, you know zero and very – not zero, but you know, zero Celsius and very few of those reactions are taking place. So my feeling is – and but the, the real thing is I don't really know how much of a difference that will make. My guess is not that much. And if the, okay. product, if the product's already, def- already thawed anyway – now look, if you thaw a product out, so I always tell people, they say, like, you know, how's my meat going to be that's been frozen? I say, well, when you thaw it, look at how much drip is coming out. And a, a meat that's been stored poorly or for too long with a lot of temperature cycling is going to have a huge amount of drip loss out of their meat, right? Right. Uh, but frankly, you know, if, if you're doing a braise, you're going to be cooking at high enough temperatures that you'd get an equivalent amount of drip loss out of the fresh thing anyway, because you'd be squeezing that crap out when you're when you're cooking it. Uh, you know, it's only in kind of steak scenarios where you get very little drip out of the cook because your temperatures yeah. are so low that I think it's going to make a big deal about the drip loss on thawing uh, inside the bag. Uh, you know. I, I think it's probably going to be minimal in a braise. It's my feeling. Now, my, my only the only caveat with braises in general is that you want to hyper reduce any stock uh, or any flavors or any sauces that go in the bag with the braise because otherwise right. it's going to taste poached when it comes out instead of braised. Not bad, yeah. just poached. Okay. Now, what about traditional? If you were going to do a traditional braise with one of the with you know like a tougher cut, not in a bag from frozen. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'd be I'd be more loath to do it. And that, but the the question is is how long how long is the window of awesomeness on the cook? Right, that's the first thing you have to right. ask. And then uh, then how thick are the pieces, and how fast will they thaw out in the simmering water? That's the second, you know, in the in the in the bubbling water. That's the second piece of the puzzle. So if the window of awesomeness 
let's say you're doing like you know you're getting a pork shoulder and you uh, you're making you know I don't know chili or something like this and you're braising it out. Sure. Uh, you know, it, it, I wouldn't do a whole pork shoulder that way. That's crazy. Now, if you if the piece yeah. if the pieces had already been cut down, you know, such that they, you know they're only you know you know centimeter two centimeters thick, like I normally do when I'm going to pressure cook, and then sure. you know you sear them off to get a little crust to have a foam to reduce anyway, right? That's pre-thawing uh-huh. them a little bit, and then you throw them in. Well, we all know that. You know, you have quite a bit of time from the time it first becomes tender till the time it's crap for that to be done, and they'll probably thaw out pretty quickly. So probably not a big deal. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, uh, totally. Yeah. So I think it, a lot depends, uh, and you just have to kind of judge in your mind uh, how long it's going to take to thaw out and how big of a window you have. Okay. Cool. That's really helpful. All righty. Good luck with it. Let us know how everything works out. Absolutely. Thanks, Dave. Love the show. All right. Thanks. Uh, okay, so we have two more quick ones to try to try to get in. We have from uh, Parker Cook, who is at Gun Pistol Man. I wonder whether he knows uh, Byron Ferguson. Yeah, or no, Bi- not Byron Ferguson. Who's the other? No, Bob Mun- Bob Munden, the mm. fastest. He just died like a couple of years ago. The fastest draw, in, mm. like in the world. Guy freaking incredible. Died of a heart attack in his car mm. when he was driving. Rough. You wouldn't think that like the fastest draw like to ever have lived. Like the world's fastest gun. Just in a car, heart attack. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, it sucks. Sucks, right? Yeah. I, mean, I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. That has nothing to do with anything. Okay. He says, at Cookie Issues, what are your guys' guilty pleasures? I love making homemade uh, uh, sous vide burgers, but on occasion love a burger from McDonald's. What do you think? What do you got? Give me some guilty I think, pleasures. I think uh, economy candy. Candy. Just total binge. Oh, Nastasha is a candy fiend. But yeah. she's also she also like has some weird hates. Like you hate... Like what flavor of gummy bear do you hate? What color, I should say? All except white. You only love white? I but, can I can eat uh, red and green. But you buy sacks of them just for the whites? Yeah, Piper gives me all the whites. Wait, so I've I've seen you you and Piper plow through sacks and sacks of gummy bears. I know. And it's only for the whites. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the reds. And greens. And greens. Mm-hmm. Strange. Uh, so. What's yours? Mine. Uh, well, first of all, I, you know, for, for many, many years, I had, uh, not been to McDonald's, like two decades almost, uh, decade and a half. And then, uh, I swear to God, once I have kids and I bought a car and you're rocketing down I-95 or trying to, you're actually stopped in bumper to bumper traffic on on I-95, like one of the worst roads. It wasn't like that, you know, 20 years ago when I used to drive it every day. Now it's like just freaking the worst traffic mess in the world. So you're there and your kids are freaking hungry and you don't want to get off and find something real. And so the McDonald's is there. So I have to admit, I've gone to it a couple of times recently. And you know what I've always loved at McDonald's is the fake milkshakes. Mm. Those fake shakes are freaking delicious. I always feel bad after I drink them. Like they make me feel kind of wrong. Not guilty, but wrong. Uh, uh, but I love them. I love the texture. They're so f- – I don't even know how they make those damn things. They're made with milk. I know they're actually milk, but for my whole life I've called them fake shakes. Vanilla, not the chocolate. Chocolate weak. Vanilla, good. And, uh, you know, or, or vanillin, the vanillin fake shake from McDonald's. Do you like those things? I haven't had one in a very long time. What about you guys? You guys in the booth like the McDonald's fake shake? I like the McDonald's milkshake, but I heard a rumor, and this actually might be something to look into for next week, that the McFlurry at McDonald's is completely vegan if you get it with Oreos because there's no real milk in it. 
I, d- I do not know that. I will look it uh, up. It's a rumor I've heard. I don't know. It could be completely false. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I will look it up. Uh, it, you know, I know for a fact that uh, the fake shake has milk in it because they, they used to put the real symbol on it, the milk symbol, the real symbol. Oh, but, okay. But uh, I don't know about this McFlurry. Isn't Flurry owned by the – So doesn't someone else own Flurry? Well, no. There, there's the Blizzard, which is uh, – Dairy Queen. Hardy, oh, no. Dairy Queen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Blizzard. Dairy Queen. Okay, so listen. So here's the real trick, uh, uh, Parker. Like – I don't believe in feeling guilty about what you eat. And this is, I think, the primary, this is the primary thing. I don't allow anyone to say the word, uh, to use the words junk food in my house. And the reason is, I think that thinking about food as something you do uh, to make yourself guilty or not guilty or as, a, as a, a reward for being able to do something that you perceive as bad is fundamentally unhealthy way that we look at eating here in this country. I think that, you know, there is food that I don't allow my kids to eat all the time. There's foods that I don't buy because they're low quality, like Lunchables. I don't know I don't know who the hell does the marketing on Lunchables, right? But my kids ask for Lunchables all the time. And Booker, my, my oldest son, you know, he has he has some some specific issues. But we're going through uh, the supermarket, he's like Daddy, why won't you buy the Lunchables? Is it because they're low quality? I'm like, shh. <laughs> he does the same thing like with like, – they, they have some low quality meats at my local kind of you know supermarket. And so they're like, why don't you buy the beef here, Daddy? Is it because it's low quality? I'm like, shh. So I think that there's foods that are kind of low quality. They still have nutrients and they can still be eaten and I don't buy those. But I don't believe in any category of food being junk, just ones that you should probably eat more of and ones you should eat less of. But I think you know we as a nation would do better to think about um, – to, to not think of food that way, right? Mm-hmm. What do you think, Stas? I mean I feel bad when I eat a ton of candy. Though. Yeah, because you're eating a ton of candy. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's like – you know what? When I went to Austin after I did my uh, after I did my vegan purge, and I ate nothing but uh, uh, you know barbecued beef brisket and like pounds of it, like you know for twenty four hours straight, I felt bad. <laughs> Not because my body had just come off of a vegan purge and I was polluting it with meat, right? But because I ate too much freaking meat. I just ate huge piles of greasy, peppery, barbecued, delicious meat. But you know what I mean? So your body's not set up for that. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's like you know the, the the binging thing and the worried about things. So my kids sit around worrying all the time about when they can get the stuff that's perceived as junk food. So crap on it. I just don't use the term. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like Twinkie is not a well-made product. I love them. Twinkies are good. Maybe that's one. But I like a Twinkie. So the, maybe, well, more accurately, what products are poorly made and I still like them? I like Twinkies even though they're poorly made. And as an adult, I can taste that they're bad, poorly made. And I still like them, you know? Uh, maybe the same, like, I can deal with those black olives. They're poorly made, but I, I still like them. There's plenty of products that are crap that I actually enjoy, you know? Mm-hmm. I feel that way about, like, processed cheese queso dip. That stuff is awesome. Queso is freaking awesome. Anyone yeah. that doesn't like queso has uh, issues. That stuff straight up delicious. On a chip? Come on. That stuff's delicious. I like. I like. Do you? Do uh, you make your own? Do you buy Rotel? Oh, you can fake it with the jalapeno slices chopped up and the, and just chopping your own tomatoes. But Rotel's the way to go. Okay. Uh, on the way out, uh, Christian Spinello from at Eat the Pig. We received your copy that you gave us of uh, the Curious Cook from uh, Harold McGee. Thank you so much. We're gonna have him sign it uh, when he comes in. He's gonna be in pretty soon. End of the week, I think. 
and then maybe we should use it. Anyway, because I, I have a copy at home. This is our lab copy now, but maybe we can get him to sign it and maybe use it for fundraising, right? Yeah. What do you think? Because for... everyone out there should go get a copy of The Curious Cook, his second book, uh, and the one that's unfortunately out of print. And I beat into his head every time I see him that he should put some of it available online because it really gives an insight into the mind of McGee. Uh, and Christian also asked, Dave, a while back you mentioned olive oil from Italy that you liked uh, and it was a good deal. Uh, Galufo, I believe, uh, with two L's and two S. Can you get it online? I believe you can buy uh, It's not sold under his name, but it's in uh, DePaulo's. DePaulo's, uh, olive oil. DePaulo's is a cheese shop here in Manhattan. If you should come to Manhattan, please go to DePaulo's and they will sell some of their delicious olive oils online. I happen to like a lot of olive oils from Sicily, specifically from uh, Trapani. Pronounced Trapani or Trapani? Trapani. Trapani. And uh, they have good salt around there, but they also have really good oils. I specifically like uh, certain, uh, you know, olive varieties, uh, like Nochelard, you know, things like that. Do you like like Sicilian olive oil or do you like other kind of olive oils? I'm not that schooled in it. Whatever. So my point is is that uh, it depends year to year how the harvest is. So you really want to go to a supplier that has olive oils and will let you taste them. May I recommend DePalo's? Cooking Issues! Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.